Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm the director of the centre and also an author. So we've come to the end of a second season of Mythmakers and I thought it would be a good chance to have a seasonal look back over where we've been with our podcast since May. It seems a long time ago now, but we started off with a review of the Fantastic Beasts, Secrets of Dumbledore. I note that that's now coming to be on streaming platforms, so maybe some of you will be watching it at Christmas. My um, review you can hear if you tune into that episode. I don't want to give you any spoilers. Uh, It was kind of mm, mixed. (laughs) I want to love it more than I do. I don't know if any of you feel like that. Here's a little taste of that now. Let's start with a review of the most recent film. This is the third in the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them series uh, called The Secrets of Dumbledore. And it comes after two other installments. The very first one is called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. The second one is The Crimes of Grindelwald. And now this one. Now, I think it's fair to say that these films are not loved as much as the Harry Potter films. So I'm going to first of all talk about this film on its own merits and how it fits in this series and then compare it to what's going on when you compare it to the Harry Potter sequence. Now, I would say that if you haven't yet gone to see the film, that this particular instalment, the third, is not bad. For one thing, the plot is more coherent. The second film. The Crimes of Grindelwald, I think, struggled under the weight of so many different storylines coming in. It really got quite knotted and was, you know, hard to follow and lost a lot of its charm as a result. This one does have a storyline, particularly in the second half of the film, where it becomes uh, quite an exciting kind of heist uh, with a, you know, something they need to achieve and a little bit of... uh, a uh, bit like a sort of Ocean's Eleven style thing of how they're going to achieve it, but set in a wizarding world. So I appreciated that. But I think one of the, for me, one of the things about these films which I struggle with is, comes down really to the colour palette. It is all quite dark and the actors are all adults. So you're looking at quite a unmagical, visual landscape except for the moments when they dip into Hogwarts 
or they have some wonderful beasts to enjoy. I think the first film, in a sense, was the most successful of this franchise because there, underlying everything else, was the plot line of um, there's this wonderful suitcase that falls open and then beasts are released in New York. And that had so much fun and humour and just had lots of great moments. The second one, as I mentioned, the strongest part of that for me was the thought of this macabre circus in Paris. So there was elements in that would work. But this one, uh, it stays pretty dark. It starts in a sort of Berlin and the themes are dark. That fits the themes. And the most brightest moment comes towards the end when you get this shift to Bhutan, a quite sort of, you know, out of left field moment. And when you're watching it, I suppose I'm asking myself, is this, am I watching it because I've watched the Harry Potter films, A Sense of Loyalty, or does it stand up on its own right? Some things are worth, you know, worth the ticket price. So I do enjoy sort of knowing more about Dumbledore. I think it, you know, Jude Law as Dumbledore is a great choice. He gives it that sort of mischief and gravitas. He's very watchable. And of course, the the film hangs on him, really. And the new Gellert Grindelwald, Mads Mikkelsen, I think is better than Johnny Depp. Uh, He looks as though he's someone that Professor Dumbledore might well have had a younger man's fling with. And he has a sort of wonderful ascetic face I don't know the the cheekbones maybe but in in demeanor he does seem convincingly as though he's a man with a mission that has turned evil so yeah that that works for me Eddie Redmayne is is cute but underused I think in these films he has sort of one sort of note that he strikes which is that awkwardness a bit of a shuffle this is the guy of an Oscar and you think "Mm, you know maybe there's more that could be done with him and the other supporting cast well the favourite character, I think, for many people is Dan Fogler's Jacob Kowalski, the the muggle amongst the the wizards, and I think he's great fun. They clear up the Credence figure, the Ezra Miller character. I'm aware there have been issues about some cast members. You know, obviously Johnny Depp has stepped out, and Ezra Miller has had his brushes with the law recently. So there probably was a external pressure <laughs> to clear up that character. But if you want to find out what happens to that character's storyline, it does sort itself out, which is quite a relief because that was part of the what was getting very tangled in the second film. And also, I think a very surprising sort of new relationship, which I really enjoyed, is seeing more of the um, Theseus, the brother to Newt, Callum Turner, that was some of the funniest moments, in fact, come with the two brothers together. So, again, there are positive things in this film, and I did enjoy it. I did sit in the cinema enjoying it. But there is a but here. What is it that is less attractive about the Fantastic Beasts to the Harry Potter films? And I'm obviously going to be looking at this from a, a script writing point of view. I admire J.K. Rowling's plotting immensely. She's very good at working out long overarching plots and I feel that this is happening in these films but not as successfully as it did in the Harry Potter. One of the problems of course is that we already know the end right at the beginning of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone when they're having the the cards in the chocolate frogs we know that it's going to come to 
a battle with Dumbledore defeating Grindelwald. So we know that's where we're going. There's, you know, the plot spoiler happened many years ago. So that removes some of the jeopardy. But there are ways around that because you can sort of forget that whilst you're watching. I think it comes down to the fact that it has lost some of the charm, which having a younger person growing up and coming into the world provides. Almost all the characters except for Jacob are already part of the wizarding world. So for them, magic is normal. I think the magic of Harry Potter is discovering that actually outside the boring world of suburbia, the Dursley world, you can then enter into this fantastic world. And it's that journey that Harry goes on and we go with him. That's not available. So you're supposed to be already sold on the idea of wizards when you reach Fantastic Beasts, which of course most of the audience is, but it loses that feeling of, gosh, how marvellous, how spectacular, which is really at the heart of the charm of the Harry Potter series. And of course, there is the vulnerable character, Harry himself. There isn't the same character with the same vulnerabilities in the Fantastic Beasts that you do get people who are exposed and and in, abused in some ways. That's certainly the case with the Ezra Miller character. But they're not the beating heart. And I think, for me, this is why I would turn back to Harry Potter to enjoy in the way that I don't re-watch the Fantastic Beast films. And the locations don't work as well either. So with Hogwarts, you get... In in some ways, when you think of the, the you know the economics of the Wizarding World, which my family and I have discussed at great length during the two thousands, you know when these books were coming out, I had small children, and that's we were enjoying them step by step. It was hugely exciting, but we did sort of wonder about how the economy works because the way wizards plug into the real world didn't feel quite right somehow. But anyway, it's fantasy. Let's not worry too much about that you sort of forgave it the fact that the most strategic place in the world was this school in in Scotland that didn't matter it, it we all agreed because we all loved Hogwarts that's fine in this one this the stakes are bigger it feels more like a Nazi takeover of the world so the scale is appropriate but somehow uh, in Fantastic Beasts we lose our connection because we're not sure what's at stake it's not the teachers we know who are having to man the walls or the pupils manning up to go and you know protect the bridge like Neville does in the the last um installment so it it becomes a drift in a sense a drift so I think in terms of problems for keeping an audience I'm not sure who they're appealing to I wonder if we started with Fantastic Beasts if I as a parent would feel oh yeah, here you are, kids, here's a really exciting wizarding story. I think I probably wouldn't. And then if it wasn't meant for kids, um, but for older people, the sort of YA audience upwards, then is it really, is it touching on the themes that feel adult? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I have a sort of I don't look forward to these films in the way that I really remember looking forward to the Harry Potter films. I think there was the aspect in the Harry Potter films of wanting to see the children growing up and flourish. Whereas this, I don't know who I'm, who I'm backing. Yeah. I'm, I'm less secure as someone watching it. But also this season, I've had a fantastic time 
meeting writers. So I started off with AJ Lancaster, who writes uh, independently. Her books, Lord of Stariel, are well worth checking out. And for a second bite of our Christmas pudding, here is AJ now. About Middle Earth basically becoming synonymous with New Zealand. I'm basically expecting you to be a cousin of Peter Jackson or something. <laughs> is this true? Uh, oh, yes, obviously. We're all, we're all related to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, as, as just like every New Zealander owns 10 sheep. Um, yeah, that's, 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 that's and we're all hobbits. Um, <laughs> it is one of those uh, those strange things that gets associated with New Zealand when you when you're overseas or you're talking to someone from overseas. Um, is Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, sheep, rugby, one of those three, depending on your audience. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so for me, I. I'm gonna I'm gonna commit sacrilege and say I actually like the movies better than the books. <laughs> oh no! And the, the broadcast. <laughs> the, yeah, you might you can you can take that out later. Um, uh, I think it's I like I, I honor what Tolkien did for the genre, but it's not my it's not my preferred style. I guess I I like a, a slightly more modern slightly faster paced thing whilst admiring all the work he did inventing languages and all the kind of myth kind of level. Uh, in terms of New Zealand, uh, it's a very strange thing because New Zealand is really beautiful and I feel like the the movies really captured that and a lot of it does look like that. <laughs> uh, but Lord of the Rings you know, places like the Shire, I, I, the land that Tolkien was imagining is, is clearly more England. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, is, it is an odd disconnect, isn't it? Because I I think I live somewhere much more like the Shire than than the Hobbiton that, that was created, which felt... Have you, oh, have you yeah. ever been to New Zealand? <laughs> no, I'd love to come. I, I, I'm I sure from the, the Hobbiton, is, it is very charming, yeah. I have to say. <laughs> I suppose what I was thinking about was more, um, it's, it's quite, obviously it's a film set, so it's relatively small, and it doesn't have the network of villages that mm-hmm. the Shire actually is and the pubs and the sense of rival communities and Buckland and all the rest of it, which is absolutely necessary for a film set. Whereas places I live near are very like that. And I think you don't have to worry about being identified as a hobbit because, you know, there's plenty of us <laughs> over here too. Anyway, um, so I was wondering if you felt that the use of the Middle Earth landscapes as being synonymous with New Zealand kind of get in the way of your own fantasy, creative, you know, your imagination because you feel it's already been used in that way. Um, uh, no, not really, because although although the the sort of movie has that sort of very iconic landscapes, it doesn't feel like New Zealand, if that makes sense. Like, oh, right. Now that that would be an interesting challenge. If I came and visited it, would I um think would I be walking around with entirely the wrong wrong lens? I think I might be. I reckon a lot of these package tours might. Well, you would see particular bits, of it, or like like you say, like you go, you would go to the. You know the tourist set at uh, Matamata, which is Hobbiton. That's where mm. they built it. Um, but uh, something you said about the 
you know, like New Zealand doesn't have the the little connections of villages or to other villages. It's that kind of weight of human history. Like, mm. um, obviously, New Zealand does have its own history, uh, and we have our own Indigenous people. Uh, but in terms of the length of human op- occupation, like, like in in England, there are pubs that are five hundred years old, and it's not that unusual. Oh. But <laughs> that is that is not the case in New Zealand. You know, we don't have uh, you know, it's debatable when when Māori first came to New Zealand, but say roughly a thousand years ago or so. Um, but then, if you go back f- much further than that, you know, two thousand years ago, there were there were people in England building things, but there were birds here. <laughs> um, and I'm getting off point. Um, but in terms of like you know, like the flora and fauna, they sort of that's not so much in the movies, I guess, because it wouldn't fit with the kind of Tolkien-esque, yeah. all, all, our, all our kind of bird life and, like, a little bit of the bush, but the the spots they chose, they chose particularly to more represent kind of very English and European flora, flora and trees and things. Um, so when I kind of watch the movies, although I can pick out particular landscapes, it's not, it doesn't kind of evoke kind of that feeling of walking through the New Zealand bush because it, it doesn't really look so much like that. It has a very different look. Um, well, that's reassuring to know that they haven't sort of edged out the fantasy potential for, for yourself as a writer. But let's come my, to my neighbourhood, as it were, because um, you told me that you wrote the first draft of the first book in your series, The Lord of Stariel, while living in Oxford. Um, so did you find the city itself as a, a source of inspiration. I mean, there's a, a lot of Oxford and Cambridge, I think, in your other city in your book. Well, one of your other cities is called Knoxbridge. Um, uh, yes, cunningly disguised. Cunningly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, no one will ever guess. Uh, uh, yes, I wrote, I wrote the first draft. I had just moved to Oxford. Um, I'd moved to Oxford in October and... I think around 2014 uh, and I was starting a new job in uh, in November and I needed a way, I needed a way to meet people <laughs> so I thought oh I'll write a novel for um, National Novel Writing Month which is November uh, and so that's that's sort of where Stariel came from and it was very influenced by uh, living in England um, by the kind of uh, November is kind of the weather's getting kind of colder so all the kind of like particularly like the lamps and like the that kind of old old style architecture that there's so much of around there and the beautiful buildings um and I'd also recently been up to uh done a little bit of traveling up in Scotland um ah hence the Lord from the North idea in the, the yeah time. yeah well I and I'd I'd, I'd, I'd been re-watching a, an old um series for a little while ago called Monarch of the Glen. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, yeah. 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 So, so which has, uh, as a sort of initial, it's, it's, it's sort of set in modern times, but the sort of, st- the kickoff of the TV show is that the sort of black sheep of the family gets a call that is, his father's dead and goes back to the crumbling old estate in Scotland. Um, and so I sort of had that in my head, uh, and the sort of season of the the turn of seasons, 
Um, and I thought, oh, but it would be much cooler if it was magical and set further ago and if the main character was a woman. Um, <laughs> I think AJ's is great because it's exactly the way that our sort of magpie tendency as writers should be used. Like you watch something like Monica the Glen, which is entirely, entirely different um, yes. <laughs> your series, but you take the thing which sparks your imagination and turn that into your opener because you've got your wonderful main character Heta who was living a life of relative freedom down in the main city as a illusionist on uh, in the stage company answering the call to go back to the ancestral home to find out which of um, her family uh, the Valstars is that right? Yes, yes. Um, is going to be picked as the next Lord of Stariel. And then one of my great favourites, T.A. White, uh, who's written many series, but she has an absolutely fascinating backstory of her own. So you can uh, listen to a little bit of that here. It's a very difficult genre to describe because I didn't really obey genre norms, but it's kind of like fantasy with sci-fi elements. Um, or sci-fi with fantasy elements, depending on who you ask. Um, so that was where I started, and I just went off of a dream, and it was a very sci-fi-esque dream. Like, chapter one went to a different direction, um, which was much more fantasy. Uh, so that's, that's where I started, and then because I can't make things easy on myself, I kind of transitioned to, like, high fantasy with my Pathfinders, or the Broken Land series. And then from there, I went to urban fantasy to sci-fi, like straight sci-fi. So it's, it's I kind of just write what I want. <laughs> my but the, ur- the, urban, the urban fantasy series, is that the Eileen Travers series? Yes, Eileen Travers is the yeah. urban fantasy. And then the Firebird Chronicles is more of my sci-fi um, with a couple of fantastical elements to it. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose an interesting question for anyone who's got their hands on an author to ask them is, is there a sort of particular thing that started you off as a fantasy writer? I was noticing that you talked on your website about starting writing very young uh, with a partner who then threw her biscuits at you. Is this (laughs) this true? What happened there? Uh, So it was like, that would have been when we lived in North Carolina, but I was like in second, first grade and I couldn't, I, I had a little, I struggled to learn to read, which meant I struggled to learn to write. And so at that age, like I really wanted to write a ghost story. Um, and I had to partner up with somebody who was a little bit older, like a year or two older than me because I couldn't do it by myself. And like we did it for a day and a half. And then they were like, I'm bored with this. I don't want to do it. And I got really mad and I, I maybe threw a cookie at her head. <laughs> oh, young. OK, that way around. <laughs> and it was there a particular book once you did get into reading? Was there a particular book um, that inspired you to follow your path? Yeah, it's kind of funny because I started wanting to write before I could actually really like before I started liking to read. Um, And then Nancy Drew in third grade, the second time around, was the book that got me into reading. Um, But the book that got me into fantasy was uh, Tamara Pierce, The Woman Who Walks Like a Man. Um, It's the third in the series, but I was living in a, in Okinawa, uh, cause my dad was stationed there and they didn't have the first two books in the series at that library. So I started with the third and it just kind of, 
it was the first time I realized that fantasy could be like this really fun genre that's about real things, but told in a different way. And that you can have real life problems, but with magic and other things mixed in with it to just make it a little bit more interesting. Is that the uh, Lana series, the yes, um, yes. Lana Chronicles? Uh, have you read the Kel ones? I have Kaladri. Oh, she's my favorite, the protector of the small. Uh, yeah. I actually think I like her a little bit more than Alana because Alana had like magic to fall back on and she had the goddess to like, she was like kind of a chosen one, but you don't find that out till like the second book, I think. Whereas Kaladri or Kel, uh, she was, she's just a normal person who went after their dream and had to work very, very hard to make that happen. And I really like stories where you have to like, it's not just given to you and you're not just special. You, you have to actually work to be the person you want and to achieve your dream. So that's, that's like my favorite of her series. Yeah. And I absolutely love that. Um, one of the books is all about how to manage a refugee camp for internally displaced people. Right. Yeah. That was one of my favorites too. It's right up my street as a former um, development aid worker. Um, and also it's just such a breath of fresh air after all these big battles things, what happens to the civilians, you know, very, very poignant and they're great books. So another book recommendation for listeners is to go and explore the Tamara mm-hmm. Pierce um, back library. Um, so what was your journey to being an actual published author after the biscuit throwing episode? <laughs> uh, well, it was kind of like a long circuitous journey. Like I, uh, in high school, there was this, we had, where I went to high school, you had a senior thesis project that you had to do to graduate and it had to have a written element. So I decided to write a book and, um, that's the book that nobody will ever see. Uh, uh, so I wrote that book and then I went to college for journalism at the Ohio university script school of journalism. Cause I figured I could work on my craft while having a full-time job. Um, and then I graduated and nobody was hiring. So my mom told me to join the military, which I did, and to do public affairs for them, which I did. So the first time after that was I was in Afghanistan and it's kind of a situation where you're in a very small area and you can't go anywhere except for our missions, uh, which I did. But you're stuck in a one place. And you don't have the distractions of being in like the United States to take away from your creativity. And there is a point where you don't want to read any more books and you don't want to watch any more TV shows. And it had always been my dream to be a writer. So I figured, hey, I'm here for a year. Why not write a book? And that's what I did. And that's where Dragon Ridden Chronicles came um and Pathfinder a little bit I had the idea for Pathfinder while I was there and um actually that probably sparked a lot of the ideas in Pathfinder uh so that was kind of when I started and it took me like a year and a half two years to get that book like done and edited and to the point where I felt comfortable releasing it to the public that is absolutely fascinating that was a brilliant story in itself and it also explains the Eileen Travers backstory um, yeah I, those three years were very instrumental in forming me as a person um so a lot of my books draws from that as like the creative incentive because you went you go through a lot in a very short period of time and you kind of find out who you are and then 
when you have to write these other things that draw on the military, it, it's just a little bit easier. So yeah, <laughs> Aileen, Aileen is like a product of me coming home and some of the anger and upset that I had and how disconnected I felt to being home. Uh, like some of the conversations she has with her mom are things that I've talked with about other people coming home as a soldier and how people think you have PTSD and everybody's the same. So yeah, that was a big part of that character and why I wrote her because it was kind of cathartic. Yeah, and her, her experience in the military is brilliantly specific. Um, being the sort of the camera person who goes along with the yeah. um, the guys on patrol, and yeah. I did sort of think, oh, this is this is really well researched, and now I know why, you know. Yeah, because I did. Um, I didn't do her job. I was more, um, but I, I knew the guys who did her job. Yeah. Like I was public affairs. I did go on the missions, but it wasn't just to take photos. Like I took photos, but it was also to get the story. And so the combat cameras. I had a couple of friends who were combat camera. That was really fun to talk to them and figure out how that job differed from mine. Yeah, I, I, I think what's really interesting about that experience is most, I would say that all of your heroines have a problem with authority. And it, <laughs> is that fair? And there's a particular thing with, uh, is it you call her Aileen or Eileen? Aileen. I call her Aileen, but I Aileen. think it's supposed to be Eileen. Okay. Um, she she's uh, well it's not not a plot spoiler that she's a a, a baby vampire a young vampire yeah. so she has had this past where she already probably was in a authority structure which she had thought she left finding herself plunged into this one where you have to be a hundred years before you're given you know a chance to go out on your own at all um yeah. so uh it makes it makes sense now totally makes sense <laughs> I also met with the lovely Michelle Diner, who writes a kind of space opera style books. Uh, I'm gradually reading my way through her fantasy series. I started with the one that was called Dark Horse, partly because it was uh, a free audio at that time. And that got me into the rest of the series. I don't know about you, but I absolutely love listening to fantasy, not only reading it. I started out as a historical fiction writer. Um, my first uh, publishing contract was with um, Simon & Schuster's Gallery Books. And I wrote a three book series for them uh, set around uh, the uh, court of Henry VIII. I think at the time, Simon & Schuster was owned by CBS and they had the Tudors Oh, as yeah. that television series. And so they were very keen uh, on buying books that were set in the, tu uh, in the Tudor era. And, uh, yeah, so, um, and then I wrote a Regency set series for, for them. But in between those historical books, I ended up writing quite a lot of fantasy just because... It was a really great break for me. Uh, I found the historicals very, you know, self-evidently uh, very research-heavy, and I'm quite a perfectionist, so <laughs> I was quite stressed by <laughs> getting every little detail right, and fantasy was a really great escape for me, kind of a pressure valve 
And yes, yeah, so that's why I started writing more fancy. And then I had the idea for the first book in my uh, Class 5 series, Dark Horse. And I, I kind of never looked back. I, did, I haven't written any historicals since then. <laughs> so I've got, the, I've got the series title wrong. So it's not Dark Class, it's Class 5. Yes. And there are five of them Class now. Class 5, yes. Yes, which is, right. which is yes. wonderful news for readers. Just cycling back um, to what you said about mm. writing historical, I've written um, historical fiction under, well, under various pen names, but particularly as mm. writing for Eve Edwards, I did a Tudor series with Penguin. Right. And um, I remember feeling that same pressure that you talked about. Mm. So the way I cope with it was focusing down on a year, and sort of saying, right, yes. I'm going to understand this year, be it 1580 yes. or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was even worse when I wrote about the Second World, uh, the First World War, because there is so much information available. And I was writing about them, yes. the trenches. So what I did there is I thought, right, I'm going to find an account from somebody um, in that in the trenches. I'm going to see the day that I'm talking about from their point of view. So I found a diary. And thought, right, I'm just going to know it from that perspective because there was so much. You're right; you just get overwhelmed. Mm. So, did you did you do I, that sort I mean, of narrowing down thing? Yes, I did. Well, with um, my Tudor set books, the heroine is Susanna Hurrenboat, who was a real person. So, uh, there wasn't a lot written about her, but I did know around about when she was when she arrived in London, who she married, uh, what she did while she was there. She was an artist in Henry, uh, Henry VIII's court and one of the few women artists that was kind of recognised at that level. So that helps. Um, and in my Regency series, I um, chose a specific historical event event sorry I keep hearing myself oh, don't a, worry we can't in my ear. yeah yeah so, um yeah so that helps as well to choose as you say a, a specific year or a specific event but yeah. I'm, in my Tudor stuff I mean I found myself looking up the tide tables for the Thames yeah. and working out what day was high tide for the day in my story and the colour of the mud in the fields and things like that. And I, I realise I have a problem <laughs> with just getting things super correct. I don't know. I, I think those sort of details really help. I mean, we may talk about this a bit later on, but having a sense of a real time, real place really helps carry over into fantasy. And one of the things I learned recently, which I really enjoyed, was finding out about how Tolkien... Um, because he was during the Second World War a fire warden, which meant going up on the roofs of buildings to watch in case fire has broken out in any of the historic buildings due to bombing. Right. Um, he he tracked the moon cycle, the moon phases, and he used what he was seeing for Lord of the Rings and the journey in Lord of the Rings hmm. through his own actual observations. And I think that kind of thing if people are writing fantasy, it really helps give a sense of, so that you, you know, you don't have a full moon one day and a crescent moon the next. Exactly. 
Yes. Because then people will stop having any faith in your world unless you've got a very fast moon cycle in for whatever reason in your, you know, <laughs> yes. you're on a different planet. I mean, let's, yes. that could be possible. Um, fantastic. It so, also ends up helping with your plot, mm, I think, yeah. because in in the second book in my Tudor series, I wrote about the um, the boat, the boats that kind of rode through the arches of London Bridge oh, at yeah. high tide. Yeah. And those kind of things really add to the story and it actually ended up being part of the crescendo at the end. And maybe I would not have known that much about it had, had I not gone into all the tide-related information. So, yeah. And just so people... People know it's not the current London Bridge. It's the one with all the houses on. I wrote a book set people living on London Bridge. So I also did that research. And it was really dangerous because they had very narrow apertures. And so the Thames is Mm. quite a a strong tide. So it was like shooting Mm. a kind of rapids, not helped by the fact. Yes, it was actually called shooting the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, exciting. I love must look that book up. I don't just read fantasy. I, I do allow myself to read historical. So I look forward to reading <laughs> that book too. And then one of you listeners wrote in and suggested I talk to Victoria Goddard. Thank you so much for that recommendation. It introduced me to a really original voice. I would highly recommend you listening to that podcast because, in fact, we split it in two because there were so many fantastic Um, things that Victoria said. I found two things about her particularly memorable. One is that she came up with a really original plot in her book, Hands of the Emperor. I was reminded of this because one of our writers on one of our creative courses was saying, don't we find that a lot of fantasy has got formulaic? Now, I know what he meant by that. Sometimes there is actually a pleasure in seeing a formula revisited and done in a new way, you know, like a romance or something like that, where the couple get together at the end. So you don't always need to break in new ground. But I really do think that Victoria has found something quite original. She was focusing in her fantasy world on someone thinking about retirement. It's much that maybe doesn't sound the most probably not on the back of the book, is it? But actually, I fell in love with her character and thought that was a brilliant theme because it was about how do you pass on power? bit of a more yeah it's a duo kind of friendly a little a little bit of a cozy mystery sort of underlying it there and a bit of an adventure and um whereas the hands of the emperor is you know it's about a um, among many things it's about a bureaucrat on the edge of retirement kind of thing and um so so I suppose in terms of genre I just kind of say well I'm, I'm right in the middle of fantasy but I tend to write these sort of slightly off off kilter towards genre conventions yeah, and I think that's what is so wonderful about your writing, Victoria, is that you feel really original. Um, that's There's nothing wrong with reading something which fits in a genre. So if you read a romance or a detective story, you know how it's going to turn out, or a Western. Yeah, you, you know before you start what's going to happen, more or less, but you don't know what the journey is. Whereas when I started reading Hands of the Emperor, I had no idea what the journey was going to be. And it was a pure delight. It's a longer book. It's not a sort of thing you can knock out in a a day, Um, but I have thoroughly enjoyed my week spent with your main character, Cleofer. So, but before we come to him, um, I'm just thinking about the influence and place uh, on your stories, because 
the Green Wing and Dart series feels quite like a, a sort of 18th century feel. I mean, people are the sort of small, t- small villagey town type society there feels like that. Whereas the the world of the hands of the emperor is very much a much bigger scale. It's got um, a sense of almost a mixture of the sort of Chinese bureaucracy and the exams that you used to have to do to be part of the Chinese bureaucracy, but also island culture that could be from uh, I don't know Maori or Pacific Islands. I mean, you're you're creating your own world, but I felt that there was a sort of sample of different elements that you were going for. So. As a writer, have you travelled first and gone round squirrelling away all these ideas? Or is it something that you think, oh, I want to do this and then go and have a look at it? It's a little bit of both. Um, as I said, my family's uh, British and I've spent a number of visits and some quite some time visiting family members in various parts of England and Wales particularly. And I did a year abroad in Scotland um, when I was in undergrad. And... Um, and so for me, I've always really enjoyed that kind of, yes, the 19th century, sort of the Jane Austen or early, late 18th, early 19th century, that kind of period of the early novels. Um, and then, and the sort of early Regency stuff. And then also just sort of the the kind of idealized vision that people have of Oxford and Cambridge and things like that. And I enjoyed playing with that and thinking about, I have an academic background. And so I enjoyed thinking about, you know, what, the, the good parts of that and also the bad parts of that in some ways. We haven't seen that much of the university experience, but I, I enjoy thinking about it. And um, so for me, kind of travel, I, I once spent about six months walking down the length of England and staying with various relatives and friends along the way. And so that kind of sense of the landscape um, was a great resource for me. Um, otherwise, I've lived around quite, I've moved quite a lot around Canada growing up, lived in 14 places across the country. And my parents spent 10 years in Papua New Guinea, north of Australia. And so I had a lot of stories about Papua New Guinea and Australia growing up. And I think that really comes out strongly in the hands of the emperor with the White Seas Islander culture, which is, um, quite strongly based on sort of Polynesian, historic Polynesian culture, but there's quite a lot of Papua New Guinean elements in there too, from the Trobriand Islands and the Highlands, which is where my parents lived. And so I had lots of stories and like the material culture of that, that my parents had various elements of it and friends of theirs um, who come to visit us or we visited them. I've only been there once, but uh, that I remember I was there when I was very, as a baby, but as an adult, I've only been there once. And so it was a very, um, rich experience, even being a quite short trip. So I enjoy uh, that combination. I I feel like it's important to be very respectful of other cultures. And I try really hard to uh, not to appropriate um, cultural elements, um, especially from ones that have been, you know, historically colonized. But at the same time, I also think it's very important to try and broaden the base that you're building off of. So the Greenwing and Dart series is quite largely based off of kind of the English country tradition and country, like country house um, stories too, right? Like that kind of the mysteries that you get out of or, or and that, that tradition there. But the hands of the emperor in the world that that's set in, which is Zunid, I deliberately wanted it to be a non-Western European um, based society. I was. I really wanted to to get away from that. So I. I the different parts of Zunith are drawn from different um, non-Western cultures as a conscious choice. There. 
And what the person who wrote in said is I something along the lines of, I defy you not to fall in love with Cleophor. Now, Cleophor <laughs> is the main character um, of the Hands of the Emperor. He is the Hands of the Emperor. You could describe him very boringly as bureaucrat, but actually he is just the most wonderful, wonderful character. Um, I was saying to you just before we started recording that he reminds me very much of the um, Count Rostov, who is the lead figure in the fantastic um, novel Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Taos, which is a historical novel, I think being filmed at the moment. Um, but the, the, how that story works is that you just love spending time with that character. And I felt absolutely the same about Cleofer. And as you were just saying, what you're thinking about in this book are things which don't make it into fantasy. It's the stuff that's not around the battle. It's um, how do you hand on power? How do you retire? And there's also a really strong theme about what do the people back home think of those who have gone into another walk of life and got success elsewhere, which doesn't translate into the local context at all. They're completely misunderstood understand him in sad ways so when you started this book did you start with the character and just see where it went or did you already have those themes in mind and then you know built him to fit the plot no it was a very character driven um different book so my my kind of general project as I said I tend to I write these sort of it's a sprawling interconnected stories in my in my narrative universe here and they they there's sort of two parallel core um to that that project one of them there's this empire called the empire of Astandalaz which has this catastrophic cataclysmic magical co collapse that happens and so I it's sort of one of my projects is the lead up to to that collapse and then what happens afterwards. I'm not really a dystopian kind of writer. I'm really much more interested in how do you rebuild um, what happens afterwards. But that that kind of shadow that falls across the entire, um, entire cultures and individuals is something that I find a very interesting to think about. And I think this connects back to something like Tolkien and the shadow of World War One that's always behind um, all those authors of the first half of the 20th century. And I've always found that interwar period quite interesting for that with, with people not always talking directly about it, but it's always there. And so in my novels, that kind of the fall of Estandalaz is, is that, that culture-wide devastation that people don't always talk about, but is always there. So that's one part of the project. And then the second part of the project is this figure of... Um, of one character um, and who is um, called Fitzroy Ingersoll and he's a main character in various books and referred to in other ones, he's this poet. And so as part of that, one thing I was interested in with the fall of Estandalaz and the effects of it was the character of the last emperor of Estandalaz who survives the, this destruction and ends up having to kind of rebuild on a personal level. And so I started off writing this, what was going to be a short vignette uh, about the last emperor and what he was like in the period after things had sort of settled down after the fall. And I thought, oh, his secretary is probably a good window onto what he's like as a person. And so I started writing about his secretary and it was really only intended to be a couple of scenes or maybe one scene, like that was all I was doing. And by the end of the scene, I had fallen in love with Cleofer as a character. He was just so interesting and he just kind of kept going. And and that was, the story was, was, an, was an unusual one to write because I usually have more of a sense of, what the story is to start with, or at least 
like I often know what the emotional tone I want to end with is, or like the the very the denouement. I don't always know what the climax is, but I usually know what the denouement is and where the characters end up. And so for that one, I had no sense of what the arc was at first. I just kind of kept, but I kept being drawn to writing scenes, and I just kept imagining them like I'd be driving or I'd be, you know, taking the dogs for a walk or something, and the scene would come into mind, and I, I just have to go write it. And so for I don't know a year, a year and a half, maybe two years, I just kind of kept going back to it and picking away at it. And I was enjoying writing it so much. Like I just love spending time with Cleofer. And eventually I was like, okay, you know what? I'm not getting any other books done. I'm just going to focus on this one and see where it takes me. And eventually at that point, I realized that the reason I had had so much problem seeing what the arc was, was because it was an incredibly long book. And so I'd written, you know, 80,000 words, which is normally coming towards the end of a, of a novel that I usually write, but that's really I mean, not even a third of the way through this one. So the the kind of character arc was just really getting going. And then I was also really privileged to meet Lisa Edmonds, another writer who I spend a lot of time listening to her Alice Worth books. These are brilliant if you haven't met them yet. They're also very well read as an audio version of it. Very exciting story about um, a mage but actually, in many ways, it's a kind of escaped person from a gang theme. That's what I really enjoy about urban fantasy is that you see themes that you're used to in detective stories or or police procedurals being reinvented with magic uh, and dragons and things like that. What's not to like? So if you want to hear a little bit from Lisa, here is an excerpt now. Well, and I also really like the Scandinavian um, sort of psychological thriller mysteries as well mm. um like the henning mankel series um oh, yeah. and um oh gosh uh, the kenneth Bra- they turned it into a tv series with kenneth branagh um and a bunch of other like the there's just nobody that does that dark psychological really twisted <laughs> um <laughs> mysteries like norwegian and swedish um and danish authors so i feel like my series is a, like an amalgamation of all of that um alice is a little, uh, a little bit Kinsey Milhone, who is uh, Sue Grafton's uh, PI, and a little bit via Warshawski, uh, but then also um, influenced by you know all the fantasy and all of the um, the mysteries and of you know sort of across all the subgenres, sort of all <laughs> put together in one body. Yeah, Tolkien had this. Um thing he wrote about the cauldron of stories the idea that all these other elements from everything you've read and the traditions have go into this and then you ladle out your own version of it and then of course I would say Alice is definitely her own character you know she may have had these seeds in her origins but I love her as a the character she's grown to be so looking at the Alice Worth series um, for those who haven't yet read it and I'm stressing the yet Uh, It's in the urban fantasy genre. Would you like to give us a little kind of taste of what they will find if they start reading the series? Sure. Um, Now, uh, my particular world is sort of, it's it's very similar. Alice's world is very similar to our own uh, with the addition of supernatural and paranormal creatures and beings. Um, So there are shifters and vampires and ghouls um, and things like that. And so, I, I like, uh, my preference on urban fantasy is like our, um, like our world, 
but with these interesting twists. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I also enjoy urban fantasy that steps much farther away from our own world, like um, Anne Bishop's The Others series, which is very, very different. Um, so I sort of imagined um, what would have to change in our world um, if we suddenly you know, had these creatures walking among us. And so I envisioned like, well, there would have to be like a federal agency dedicated to sort of tracking, monitoring and serving as law enforcement um, who are set up for interactions with creatures that aren't human, don't think like humans and aren't um, vulnerable to the same things that we are. Um, and then sort of just, it, it sort of grew from there. Um, so Alice herself is uh, a mage, so she has magic. She has what I call natural magic. So um, uh, air and earth magic, um, as well as a few other abilities that kind of develop throughout the series. Um, <clears throat> and she is a private investigator in my world. Um, a mage private investigator uh, sort of specializes in supernatural and paranormal type mysteries and almost all of her cases involve solving a supernatural related mystery. Um, she has a ghost sidekick, <laughs> um, whose name is Malcolm, right? Yeah. <laughs> his name is Malcolm. Um, he is, I mean, he calls it, he calls himself the comic relief in the partnership. Um, you know, he's a lot of fun. Um, he tends to be a, a crowd favorite. Um, and but you know, and the, then in, in, in some ways he's her anchor. Like he's the one who, very much a, a sort of a, the conscience in some cases, isn't he? He corrects yeah, you do her. Really see him doing because Alice had the, had a really not to spoil anything, but she had a very difficult and uh, traumatic mm. childhood and upbringing, and so <clears throat> there are a lot of times where her reactions are very much shaped by her past. And Malcolm, in some <clears throat> and, a, and a few other characters, come in as like her Jiminy Cricket. And I was sort of like, Alice, I, <laughs> you know, think about this a little bit. Um, and you see her changing over the course of the books um, and adjusting and, you know, becoming a little bit more, well, she calls it a little bit more human, um, learning how to interact with others and how to love, how to love others and care for others and how to let them care and love her, um, which is a difficult journey for her, you know, considering she didn't really have that growing up. Um, so each book, they're not de they're not designed to be read um, as standalones. Each book contains its own story, its own mystery, but there are overarching stories. There's a there's a major antagonist that everything is sort of building up to her dealing with. There's storylines that run throughout each book. So although each book has a self-contained mystery for her to solve because she's a PI, um, you would want to probably start with one. <laughs> and then uh, go forward. It's not, you know, not really designed to be read out of order. And she's also in, I wouldn't call it a love triangle, that's the wrong word, because there's another side to it, but she's sort of in the middle of pulls between a shifter um, friend, a very close friend, mm -hmm. uh, lover, but also somebody within the vampire community who's very interested in her, but also the mage community. So I, there's three points. It's not really right, and, then, and a federal agent, you know, a federal yeah. agent as well. Oh, there we go. So, um, it's you know, there's there's definitely a romance angle to it, as there is with a lot of urban fantasy. But I, you know, I definitely wanted. I didn't want to get into the love triangle thing um, no. uh, too much, but there definitely is a little bit of. Oh, what's the word? Like there, there's a, uh, like she's trying to find 
the person who like, uh, you know, who completes her, who supports mm. her, who compliments her, that's the word I was looking for, who compliments her the best. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of power plays going on too, as you know, as you would expect with any, any time that you have, um, you know, you have a, like the vampires, they've been you know, hundreds of years old. They, they're all about the power. They're all about the, what can somebody do for me? What benefits me? Um, and that's not necessarily the type, the type of partnership relationship uh, that someone like Alice would be interested in. So I think what I was most interested in is exploring power dynamics in personal relationships and, you know, letting Alice sort of figure out what's the healthiest type of relationship to be yeah. in. Um, one trope in urban fantasy and paranormal romance that I'm less of a fan of is the ones where you have a, um, a real like difference in power and you have one partner asserting that dominance over the other. Um, I mean, I think there's room in any genre for all kinds of, you know, types of relationships, but I definitely wanted to focus on a more, a healthier type of relationship. So I think that is an exploration of what's a healthy relationship, what's going to be mutually beneficial, um, what love really is, um, as opposed to what can this person do for me? How can they advance my, my goals, you know, which isn't to me a healthy relationship. Yeah. And because you've got a long series that you're working on, that for example, the main central relationship with Sean does become more and more important to the reader as you go on. And I, I found it really gutting in, I think it's um, Shadows, uh, where she loses, I think it's not too much of a spoiler to say that she's because loses her memory. I think it's in the blurb, so I'm allowed to say that. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So it's a a reset of her relationship with Sean, but it's it's absolutely it's just terrible to see. No, you can't forget all these things you've had. You know that the reader is really involved in that. I thought that was a very good thing to do to a relationship from a craft point of view in the middle of what I might otherwise be. And they lived happily ever after. You know, right. you want to keep putting the grit in the relationship so that it can move on and become actually even deeper as a result. Yeah, and they, um, you know, they have a lot of ups and downs. Um, you know, as they both kind of adjust to the relationship, and you know, Sean has always wanted, um, and you know, and very much did believe and does believe he wanted an equal. He's not wanting what the rest of the pack wants him to have, which is a very submissive um, uh, mate partner. You know, who's going to just follow orders. He wanted someone to stand beside him. Um, but that's all well and good in theory until he does get someone who wants to either stand in front of him or, or stand beside him or stand in front of him. Um, and then he's got to try to figure out, you know, exactly what that means. Um, you know, and Alice isn't ever going to be anybody's, um, you know, he's not, she's not going to be bossed around uh, too. So there's a lot of dynamics there. Uh, so you have to put your relate, you know, your, your relationship through some ups and downs and, and because uh, I think that's realistic, you know, I don't know any relationship that's all sunshine and roses, you know, from day one, you're going to run into problems. You're going to run into differences of, of opinion, um, especially when you have two people who have, you know, are so kind of set in their ways, you know? So above all, I wanted it to be a realistic 
series. You know, I want my heroine to be relatable um, and um, realistic. I want the relationships, the the mysteries, the drama, it all to feel like all things that make sense, all things that are relatable, even though it's, you know, there's magic and all sorts of other creatures around. Like, I still want people to, re to read it and feel like, yeah, this is something that would really happen. And then most recently, I met with Catherine Tordassi, who is a German author whose book Bramble Fox has just been translated into English. This is a children's book. This is a reminder, of course, that many of the great fantasy stories actually are classed as children's books, though adults get a lot from them. And my conversation with Catherine took us into a whole world of German fantasy writing, which was very enjoyable for me. So the first question I have is, you're sitting in Berlin. What made you want to write a story set in Wales? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, well, first of all, um, big, big shout out to Katrin Wirtz, who wrote a really excellent translation. I really, it was such an amazing experience to to read a story that I've written, translated into another language, and she did this really beautifully. Um, I already told her via email, but if she's listening to this, uh, thank you, Catherine, once again. Um, why why did I um, uh, choose to uh, have this story uh, and uh, have Wales as a setting? Yeah, I've been, I, I lived in Wales, in North Wales, in Bangor for about a year. And I really loved it there. So it was it was a great time for me. It was a very formative year as well. So towards the end of my studies, and um, I, I loved the landscape. It's a very um, uh, Bangor is sort of situated between the sea and Snowdonia National Park. So you have mountains, you have the coastline. I'm very big on hiking, so I was outdoors a lot. And um, I also really enjoyed the university program there. So Bangor University classes um also got into um archery, <laughs> um, archery. Uh, which was fun and um yeah i have an archery club at, at uh, that's what i did for a while and um yeah when i was there i went um on hikes i always had my notebook with me and started to sort of collect impressions of of the places that i would visit and the different kinds of legends and folklore elements um, that I came into contact with. And yeah, so that's how the first ideas for the Bramble Fox stories got together. And then uh, I got to read, um, I think it's Charlotte Guest's uh, version of the Binogian, which is this collection of um, the, the Welsh um, uh, Welsh mythological um, and and folkloristic stories um, that inspired um, a lot of the King Arthur lore, for example. And there came first came across um, Anun and um, uh, and around, and uh, so that sort of lodged in there. I read. Um, uh, then more recently, I, I came across a, a Welsh artist called C.C.J. Ellis, who did a, a wonderful art book on Welsh monsters and creatures. So there's a bit of inspiration there. And um, yeah, I also, um, when I wrote the book, uh, the privilege the, the uh, Dysky Kimreik department at Bangor University, who, um, who helped me with research questions and language 
language checks and so on. So it's uh, yeah, uh, born out of a stay turned into sort of a formative um, year for me in Wales. Yeah, so we should mention for those of you who love your Welsh language or just love languages, um, anyone who likes Tolkien's languages will know that it's based on Welsh or partly. Um, yeah. Is there, you're using, and there's a, a little vo vo list of vocab at the back, you're using the Welsh language as part of the texture and feeling of the tale. And also just do a sort of promo for this podcast. If you go back a couple of episodes to the Welsh episode, uh, you can hear us talking to Claire Fayer, who is a Welsh lady who collects Welsh tales. So this will follow on after you've heard Catherine speak today. So um, I was also interested. So there you've got Wales as one centre for the story. But you then have many of the characters from Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm -hmm. Night's Dream has an element of um, existing folkloric characters and mm -hmm. ones that uh Shakespeare made up uh and <laughs> of his play um but that's obviously he's a man from Stratford-upon-Avon an Englishman so <laughs> how do you go along with the idea of incorporating the Welsh tradition with the English tradition or was your fact that you are from Germany mean that you could just ignore all that and just say right <laughs> well I would call by method <laughs> perhaps irreverent homage. <laughs> so <Right>. it's, um, <laughs> I'm kind of, I mean, I, I studied um, English literature. So Shakespeare was very big, of course, in the, in the courses that I took. And A Midsummer Night was one of the plays um, that fascinated a lot. And mm -hmm. um, I was also always fascinated by how, by, by sort of the the myth surrounding Shakespeare, the author. So um, th these questions of um, where did he get his ideas? Did he write the plays? Did someone else write the plays? So all these these different kinds of um, yeah myths and questions and stuff. So I, what I did when I uh, wrote Bramble Fox, I knew that I wanted to include fairy lore and um, always appreciated or what I've been fascinated by when it comes to the um, the use of myth and folklore in, in literature is how how these myths and um, and and legends overlap and transfer and transform in different cultures but also in different types of literature and how they get um, reread and rewritten so this kind of um, pastiche or, or, or bricolage of different motives put together into into retellings and, and slightly askew stories of uh, of other material. I always liked it when I when I read books that did that. So I that was something that I wanted to try out. And in in Wales you have the um, you have a lot of fairy lore. They're they're called um, or one term that is used there Tilwith Til Tech. So the fair family. Um, as a sort of uh, uh, collective term for for fairies or elves, what I did for Bram, I, I, I sort of imagined Shakespeare as a traveler between worlds. So I thought, what if he actually went through a portal like the children in the books and visited um, the, the the fairy world and came back with a bag full of stories, but um, 
made up that more entertaining. And there was in an early Bramble Fox, there was this scene where Titania complained about him um, writing a Midsummer Night Donkey story is pure fabrication. So it's, it's just, it's, it's a bit of silliness, to be honest, um, coming from an English literature student. I think well, you're perfectly allowed to do that because obviously here at the Oxford Centre of Fantasy, one of our sort of other touchstones is the Narnia stories. And uh, C.S. Lewis completely oh, sure, mixes yeah. up, you know, Greek mythology and all sorts of Arthurian legends. And he just goes, oh, okay, chuck a bit of this in, a bit of that. He's like that, he's like that chef who goes around the kingdom, uh, around the kitchen, pulling everything out of the cupboards <laughs> put into his kingdom. Um, so, I mean, you've met, you've just touched on it, but another way of describing Bramble Fox is that it's a portal fantasy, which we've had, well, it's in folklore, you know, the doors in the hillside you go through to, into another world and you get it in literature in Alice in Wonderland and mm-hmm. back to Lewis again. Uh, so yes, yeah. how do you come up with your version of, portal leading into this liminal land of a land of mist that sits between our world and the, well, many worlds but including the world of the fae yeah so um liminal space i find this the, the idea behind that quite fascinating so um this idea that there are places where our understanding of reality dissolves like threshold places or even a space in time where we transition from one state of being to another. And of course, there's um, also uh, the the real life or metaphorical implications of that. There's tons of cultural uh, studies on um, the idea of liminal rituals or liminal states of being that people in um, basically all societies that we know have to go through in order to grow up. So coming of age rituals would be one um, one example where you're sort of caught between the status of a child and a grown-up and then you go through a kind of ritual and then um, you, you, you sort of slip into this new identity. And um, I really like this idea that you have to go through a sort of in-between phase. And for Ben and Portia, the borderlands between the human world and the fairy world, they signify exactly that. So they they have to go through this place in order to distance themselves from the world they know, but also from their own place in the world. So they, they change quite a lot in this book. Ben needs to find more confidence and move a little bit out of his shell um, and also confront uh, his, his own personal grief. And um, Portia will discover that there's a certain wilderness in her, her that she has to contend with. So it's, yeah, I, I like this idea of the transition that you have to, sort of, that, that sort of unlocks things. And that actually picks up with another thread because I also interviewed several of our tutors on the novel in the year course just to introduce them to everybody out there and that also led us into talking about European fantasy not the sort of Anglo-Saxon tradition uh, Celtic fantasy as well so with Claire O'Brien we got into a fascinating discussion about Madame Dornois I hope I've said that right 
who is a forgotten writer of fairy tales who should be remembered up there with Hans Christian Andersen and the Grimm brothers. So if you're interested in finding new places to go, new fairy tales, maybe you're thinking of a new screenplay, something like that, do listen to what Claire had to say about that forgotten French writer. And also a bit nearer to home, but also not the Anglo-Saxon tradition, I had a discussion with Claire Fayers about Wales, where she comes from. And Claire's been doing something of a, a similar job to the other Claire, finding stories that have fallen off most people's radar and bringing them to a younger audience. There is that wonderful image in Tolkien of the cauldron of stories where all the stories that have gone before are all bubbling away but some things do sink to the bottom and get forgotten where others rise to the top and keep being skimmed off and reused stories like Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, Little Red Riding Hood we all know them and they keep getting reused and they can get a bit tired as a result and these uh, writers and researchers, I suppose we should call both Claire's, are finding new material for us so that when we do go back to that cauldron of story, it's been enriched. One of the great pleasures of setting up the Oxford Centre for Fantasy is getting to know all sorts of people who share my love for Tolkien, one of whom is Jacob Renneker. And he's made several appearances as my um, my partner to, in podcast <laughs> And we've been discussing such things as the stone giants in The Hobbit, which led to discussing giants more generally in fantasy. He also joined me along with Paula Calamaris to review the big Tolkien event of this season, which has been the Rings of Power, the Amazon series, which uh, if you're interested in hearing what we thought of it and also what our students on our creative courses thought of it we've got several episodes about that but because we love the Tolkien version of the rings of power in the third age most that's one of the that's the final chapter in fact in the Silmarillion we decided to accompany the arrival of that series with a more back to basics Silmarillion readathon now how we run our readathons is has caused a bit of confusion it's not people coming along and reading out chapters because that would infringe copyright folks. <laughs> no, what it is, it's more like a online book club where each time somebody takes charge of a chapter, reads it, finds a favourite quote and a few reflections upon it and then shares it with everybody else as you might in a book club and giving the chance for other people to comment. So if that readathon is still up on our Facebook page and on Instagram if you want to see what happened. This has been a really good format and brought new people to come and talk to us, which we love. And we're finishing off this Christmas with the 12 Days of Tolkien, where we're going to do the same thing with the much shorter but seasonal book, The Father Christmas Letters. Actually, this caused a bit of confusion in OCF uh, headquarters because I was working off the first edition and um, my colleagues were working off more recent edition, which has more letters. So just to clear up any confusion, we are using the most recent edition with the more letters. And just as a reminder that we are not just about writing, but also about any kind of fantasy inspired creativity, 
I had a conversation with animator Butch Hartman, who's probably best known for his series, The Fairly Odd Parents, which I certainly remember my kids watching. And we talked about the world of animation, which, of course, is one of the richest areas for finding fantasy being realised on the screen at the moment. So I hope you've enjoyed this series and the ones that you've listened to. If you do have any suggestions for writers you'd like me to reach out to, do send them in because it's nothing better for an author to read than uh, an email that comes saying that their fans want to hear from them. Same goes for any fantasy illustrators that you would like me to bring into the Mythmakers studio. All that remains now is to wish you all seasonal greetings, happy Christmas, and if you want to really get into the Christmas mood, you could perhaps listen to my pick for one of the top fantasy stories you really must read, because that is none other than The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. So there's no bar humbug about Christmas here, but as Tiny Tim, of course, says, God bless us, everyone. See you for our next season in the new year. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast. Brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies, and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.